Good afternoon, America. Come on inside. Hop on up into the passenger seat and sit a spell. Prop your feet up on the dashboard if you like and make yourself comfortable. Get yourself a good viewing spot for the trip we're about to take. It's a trip I've been planning for almost a decade now. A trip that may take a decade to complete. Or more. Heck, I've got no place else to be and nothing I'd rather be doing. In my life, I have traveled all over the world and been overwhelmed in every possible sense by what I found out there. But America is and will always be my home. And I love it here. Sure, sometimes the politics rub me the wrong way, but this isn't a story about politics. There are plenty of other places for that. This here is a story about my home. My story. Our story. The story of America. The story of our time. I have traveled literally hundreds of thousands of miles across and around this beautiful country. But there's still so much more to see. So this time I'm going to take it slow. Stop often. Talk to folks and see what their life is like. I'm not on any kind of time frame. I've got all the time in the world. And I don't really have a destination. Heck, I've traveled coast to coast 25 times, and it's always a great trip. But this time I'm going to take it easy. I'll get to the other side eventually, and then I'll just turn around and head right on back. I hope you'll like my stories and come back often. I'll save your seat for you. I promise they'll be mostly true, save for the little details that get blurred in the retelling, or perhaps a tiny bit of seasoning now and again to get the flavor just right. I want to take you along for the ride as I cruise down the highways and byways and hurtle down the gravel passes and dirt roads. Come with me as I sit on porch swings and rocking chairs, park benches and couches, and talk with my neighbors, your neighbors, about their life and times, our life and times. Pull up a bar stool as I sip a beer and listen to a small-town band living out their rock-and-roll dreams. Walk with me through the county fair, ride the Ferris wheel with me, and wait for the fireworks. Get up early with me to catch the sunrise. It'll be magic. It always is. It won't all be good times because, let's face it, life isn't always good times. But we'll come out the other end and the sun will shine again. That's a promise. So, are you ready to get going? Close that door and roll down your window. I'll put on some tunes and we can hit the road. We've got places to go and people to meet and times to be had. If you can't come now, I understand, but do come back and check in on me now and again. I'll be here, wherever here might be at the time. Today on the podcast, you get to hear stories about someone I am intimately familiar with. Me. I'm your host, Mike Harding, and this is the very first episode 
of American Anthology. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every town. By way of introduction, I am your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you here today. I was born and raised in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and have spent 11 of the last 16 years guiding multi-week tours around the United States and Canada. The remainder of that time I split almost evenly between New Orleans, Japan, and St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I am a certified teacher, a professional scuba diver, a semi-professional photographer, a music lover, a writer, and a lover of history, the great outdoors, and all things Americana. This year, I am embarking on a multi-year journey around the United States to visit the great places, both big and small, well-known, and well off the beaten track, and to pass time with the people who live there. I hope to chronicle these stories for you here, with a series of vignettes, interviews, and songs I collect along the way. Today, though, before I depart, I will present you with some stories from my past so you can get to know me better. Stories from the best and worst days of my life. So let's get to it. Most days come and go. Some are good, some bad, most probably somewhere in between. Many will fade into obscurity within days or weeks. Some great ones may keep you going for a while while some Saturday nights you may have already forgotten by Sunday morning. But then there are those days in life that you can never forget, and we all have them too. Days that, years later, we still think about in the shower or when a certain song comes on or just when we are alone and allowed to think. One such day for me was October 6, 2004, 23 days before my 29th birthday. It was a day that I gained an appreciation of my own mortality, and a day that I transitioned from a youthful idea of death as something intangible to an adult idea of death as something inevitable. It was the day everything changed. I lived my early years with a great attitude about death. It could come at any time, so I felt it important to live like every day could be my last. I didn't necessarily take unreasonable risks. I wasn't shooting heroin and balancing on roof ledges or anything, but I did live without much regard for the long game. I went to college but didn't study business or law. I studied forestry and history, things I thought were interesting. And I joined all kinds of activities and clubs. I went skydiving and hang gliding and took every chance I could to do something cool. After graduation, I moved to the beach and drove a sports car and hung out late. I learned to build houses and took a job guiding tours all over America. Life was great because life was short. I was afraid I wasn't going to make it to 30, so I better live in the moment. Looking back more than 10 years past 30, I think this was actually a great way to live. To be free and enjoy my youth 
while it was there. Because youth is fleeting, no matter how much you try to fight for it. I thought I was doing pretty good in this life game. Sure, my friends were getting married and moving up the career ladder, but I was bungee jumping and popping bottles in the back of Hummer limousines in Vegas. And then came October 6th, 2004, the day everything changed. It was a cool, clear day, and I was on my way to Grand Canyon. The canyon was a pretty routine stop at that point in my career. It was probably at least the 20th time I had been there. There was nothing alarming or different about the day, just another beautiful day in the desert southwest. Stopping with my group at Yavapai Point, I walked them to the edge to take some photos and soak up the gorgeous views. Everything was going as planned, until I went to take a seat on the ledge. I accidentally caught my shoe on my pants leg, stumbled, and fell forward. But there was nothing there to break my fall. Nothing but two billion years of erosion and a lot of empty space. I somersaulted over the edge of the canyon and began rolling down the ever-steepening slope. I wouldn't say my life flashed before my eyes in that moment, but I distinctly remember feeling that this was it. This was the day. I would never see 30. The only other thought that went through my head was, what a stupid way to die. As I rolled, I picked up speed, careening towards a different ledge which went at a steeper angle into the depths below. I fought with whatever strength and instinct I could, grabbing at bushes and rocks and trying to do anything to slow my descent. At one point, I felt my legs go over a ledge and I grabbed an outcrop with all my strength to hold on. It really was just like you've seen a hundred times in the movies. Unlike in the movies, though, when my body went over the ledge and my weight caught up with me, despite the strength in my grip, every one of the fingers in my right hand pulled out of its socket with such a painful pop that I had to let go. By some miracle of fate, I rolled through a few sturdy desert bushes, which slowed me down considerably, and I was able to turn my body and dig in with my feet and hands and face trying in my subconscious, survival-bent mind to create enough friction to stop myself. And somehow, in a ball of dust and scree, I did. I had fallen about 80 feet in total and came to a stop about 10 feet from where things would have gone from bad to worse and quick. I was conscious, and more importantly, I was alive. I got quickly to my feet and began scrambling up the slope towards the rim. I couldn't believe it. I was banged up but uninjured. At least that's what I thought until the first drops of blood dripped on the brown dusty rocks in front of me, bright red in the desert sun. As I brought my hand up to cover the gaping wound in my head, I saw my fingers, which had completely left their sockets, and snapped back, leaving them much shorter and fatter than they should have been. That was not good, but I lifted them anyway and put pressure on my head to stop the gusher of blood which was spraying all over the desert. I stumbled upward until I came to the base of the initial ledge that I had toppled over. 
Thankfully, someone on my tour had had the wherewithal to alert a ranger immediately, instead of stopping to watch, and help was already there. They told me to sit still, which I did. A rescue team was there so fast it was hard to believe, and a medic quickly rappelled down to me. He did a quick check and told me they were going to send down a backboard and strap me in and pull me out. That image did not sit well with me, and I told him I was going to walk out, or I might never walk back in. He told me he understood, and I could refuse the backboard and he would help me, but his job was to recommend it. I refused the backboard. Tied in and with help from above and below, I climbed my way slowly back to the canyon rim. Once there, I was immediately strapped in and taken in an ambulance to the clinic. There, they cleaned me up and reset my fingers in place with a lot of painful pulling and tugging. I was prepared as quickly as possible for the three-hour ambulance ride to Flagstaff. Before I left, I went to use the bathroom. The nurse told me it would be best if I didn't look in the mirror. Somehow I managed not to. Their ambulance brought me halfway, where Flagstaff's ambulance picked me up and took me the rest of the way. Once there, I was brought into the ER, where the nurse teased that she could see my skull, although she wasn't joking. They wanted to cut my shirt off, and I told them, Stop! Don't! This is my lucky shirt! They asked how that could be. I had just fallen off the Grand Canyon. I told them, Exactly. And I'm still here. They understood and helped me off with it. I was prepped and wheeled into the operating room where they did major reconstructive surgery on my face, including somehow reattaching the nerves I had severed. That night, all patched up and heavily sedated, I slept without dreaming. The next day, I talked to my doctors and told them I was ready to go. I had a tour to get back to. They said since I hadn't had a concussion that they couldn't keep me. I was cleared to drive. My hand was put into a special splint to allow this. I called my boss and updated my situation, thanked everyone profusely, got in a cab, and headed the three hours back to Grand Canyon. I finished that tour and the next, and the one after that. I have returned to the canyon many times, and I feel nothing bad towards it. I had walked out, so I was able and am able to walk back in. But we have a respect for each other that goes deeper than most. I have read a lot about falls in Grand Canyon since then. Several books have been written on the topic. Quite a few people have fallen off the edge over time. Not many have survived. I was one of the lucky ones. Whenever people ask me why I am the way that I am and why I live life the way that I have, there are lots of reasons I can give. But when I'm alone and when I really think about it, there's only one. There is that day in Grand Canyon.
Before that day, I lived for every second, convinced I was going to die before I turned 30. Since that day, I have lived every second, forever grateful that I didn't. In the summer of 2006, I set out to hike to Bonanza Mine in Wrangell-St. Elias National Park in Alaska. This nine-mile hike up to an old copper mine and back is probably one of the more strenuous, relatively short, front-country day hikes in the national park system. I found this out in 2006 when, about a mile in, I sat sweating and out of breath on a rock on the side of the trail. And in a moment of disappointed self-realization, gave up. That disappointment hung in a deep corner of my mind for 10 years, until last summer, 2016, when I got a second chance to make that climb and banish that demon from my soul. Wrangell St. Elias National Park is one of my three favorite parks in the country, along with Yosemite in California and Glacier National Park in Montana. It is the largest of our national parks, measuring 20,587 square miles, the equivalent of six Yellowstones, or slightly larger than Switzerland. Nine of the 13 tallest mountains in the country tower over the park, formed by volcanic uplift and glaciation. It is magnificent to see. Most of the park is wilderness, meaning no trails or roads will get you there. But the area's pre-park mining history has left us two major arteries into the park. The Nebesna Road, coming in the north, is spectacular and leads to some of the most breathtaking scenery anywhere on Earth. The more frequently traveled McCarthy Road, however, is the road I have spent more time on, and the road that leads me to this story. The McCarthy Road is 60 miles of gravel leading from the small town of Chitna to the smaller town of McCarthy, permanent population 28. Back in 2006, it was an arduous three-hour journey, and I never once made the round trip without blowing a tire on some hidden rail spike. Today, it is much improved, and on a good day, you can get there in an hour and a half. From the end of the road, you park and walk across a bridge, and on the other side, you're about a 10-minute walk from downtown McCarthy. Alternatively, you can catch a shuttle down the five miles of very poorly maintained road to Kennecott. Kennecott is a small town lodged in the past centered around the massive circa 1900 copper mill, precariously hugging the mountainside. Kennecott is one of the most charming and historic mining towns I have ever visited. Its fire-engine red buildings starkly contrasted against the gray mountains behind it. Walking down Main Street amongst the historic structures, looking out at the Wrangell Mountains and the converging glaciers, you know you're in Alaska. It is from Kennecott, already deep within 
and surrounded by the park, that this hike began. I set out early, with a pack full of food and water, on a typical, chilly, rainy, Alaska summer day. I walked the flat half-mile from town to the turnoff where the trail begins. With the memory of my past failure, now front and center in my mind, I began the long, strenuous uphill trudge. It wasn't long before my memory of the trail itself came out. I was out of breath in minutes and had only just begun. Trail is a gentle word, denoting a leisure activity. This trail is actually an old, no-nonsense wagon road that goes as straight up the mountain as possible. One foot in front of the other, breathing hard, my body was soon steaming in the cool, damp air. But up I went. I found my rhythm, but my rhythm was slow and steady, my pace just about a mile an hour. It took me about an hour to reach the point where I had ashamedly turned back ten years earlier. Arriving there, out of breath, my shirt soaked through, I quietly forgave my younger self. This was no walk in the woods. Around every corner, I hoped for some small stretch of flat, some slight chance to catch my breath. But around every corner was nothing but uphill. The first two to three hours offered very little in the way of views either, making it just a wet, grueling, unrewarding slog through the forest. About two and a half to three hours into the hike, I finally came out of the trees. When I did, I caught sight of some of the old tram stations that brought the copper down from the mines to Kennecott. Well preserved by the long, cold winters, they gave me something to look at while the trail continued relentlessly upwards. A few switchbacks took me to a small building overlooking the valley. The views, even on a cloudy, rainy day, were spectacular. Looking up, I could see Bonanza Mine. It did not look close, but there it was. I ate a quick lunch, not wanting my body heat to cool too much, as I was soaking wet and didn't need to get sick. I needed to push on. And I did. Old mining equipment was strewn everywhere. What was, 75 years ago, just discarded junk was now cool historic artifacts. The further I went, the more apparent it was that very few people make this hike. Spending the whole day on that trail, I saw less than a dozen people. Seeing the mine was a huge mental relief. It made the last hour or so of the climb seem easier, with the goal within reach. Finally reaching it felt amazing. For me, it combined my loves of natural beauty, history, and remote places. That, and of course, a feeling of accomplishment. The mine itself was old and rickety, but still fairly intact 80 years after it shut down. Old rusty equipment was scattered everywhere, and the rocks gleamed blue 
and green from the minerals deposited there. I stayed for maybe half an hour, enjoying the views and poking around. And then I left. The hike down was certainly quicker, but took its toll on my knees. Knowing there was a cold beer waiting for me at the saloon in McCarthy kept me going. That, and the feeling of redemption I got from accomplishing something at 40, I simply could not do at 30. That was an amazing feeling. It took me 10 years to realize. But I got there, on a little travel trail, leading from a remote town, 70 miles down dirt and gravel roads from a tiny outpost of civilization, in a tucked-away corner of our last frontier. July 8th, 1996. It is a beautiful, sunny day in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I am on my way to work. The windows are rolled down in my white 68 Ford Mustang. The breeze is welcome, as it's the only air conditioning I have. And the radio is on, because I'm tired of the cassette in the deck, and it's too hot to fumble around in the back for another one. The talk between songs seems to all be about a storm that's brewing out at sea in the Atlantic. Being from the East Coast, I'm familiar with big storms, but being from inland, the reality of their potential is beyond my grasp. I don't understand the terminology, and my head is probably still sore from last night's nightly beach booze session. I try and focus but give in to the beautiful day and the breeze in my face. I pull into the restaurant just south of Briarcliff Mall, roll up my windows, and head into work. The restaurant is quiet, but the staff is abuzz talking about the storm. Chris, one of the head waitresses, married and probably too old for me anyway, but still and always the model of a Carolina beach girl, warns me to pay attention, that the storms can be bad. Jack, the owner and manager, is talking about power outages and keeps bagging ice so the machine keeps making it. He's got too much invested in stake to give it up without a fight. Jeffrey in the kitchen talks of stocking up on food and booze. Dave, the bartender, tells me to stock up on booze and food. There is an overwhelming opinion I should fill my tub with water, but for the life of me, I can't figure out why. The night progresses, and I speak with most of my clients, tourists and local alike, about the impending storm. I leave that night with a much better understanding of what a hurricane is and a great deal more respect for what it can do. But for tonight, I'm thirsty and cheap pitchers at Hamburger Joe's are calling my name. Around 1 a.m. that night, Eastern Time, I'm sure, unbeknownst to me, Hurricane Bertha reached its maximum sustained winds of 115 miles per hour, making it a Category 3 hurricane, somewhere off at sea. July 9th, a day much like yesterday, 
sunny and hot and probably beginning for me sometime around noon. Laying in the bottom bunk in my room in the flop house I share with 11 other summer season kids, I turn on the radio and come to understand this storm is on a collision course with the Carolina coast. I ease into my day and, at some point, head back to work. While the day was still clear, there was something different in the air. Now, especially having lived through several major hurricanes, I know it was a change in pressure. At the time, I just felt something was off. Strange, maybe. A little scary. People come and eat, and I serve them. Jack fills bags of ice. Chris tells me to fill my tub with water. Dave tells me he's all stocked up on booze. As the night progresses, conversation starts to turn towards evacuation. Do you stay or go? Some say they aren't leaving everything they have. Others say they can pack their most valuable things in their cars and head elsewhere. To a cousin's house inland, maybe. Everything will be closed anyway, and the power could be out for days. That was the first time in my life I'd ever had to ponder an evacuation. The first time the walls of a house might not be strong enough to protect me from whatever was outside of them. It certainly made me think. I doubt I went home early that night, but probably earlier than usual. July 10th. I'm up earlier than usual as well. Not early, mind you, but earlier than usual. I buy a newspaper because in 1996, when you needed information, you bought a newspaper. The Sun News was a cute little local newspaper, and Myrtle Beach at the time was a cute little town. But the storm coverage was good. It listed evacuation routes and shelters and gave really detailed information. The staff obviously realized that for a lot of people in town, this was unfamiliar ground, both literally and figuratively. I fill up my gas tank. I buy bottled water and food. I decide if the evacuation order comes in, I'm leaving. My car and an old boombox are the only valuables I have, and I can take both of them with me. July 11th. The evacuation order comes in. The emergency broadcast system is buzzing and giving information. This is not a test. Dark clouds are rolling off the ocean. The air is charged. I call work. They tell me they're closed until whatever is coming is passed. Jack wishes me luck. I tell him I hope he has enough ice. My roommates are all staying. I offer seats in my car, but they decline. I call home from the payphone out front of my apartment, because in 1996, that's how you call home. Then I pack the few things I have and get out. Traffic is bad. There is no highway there yet. I take a back way out and start driving west. I pull into the nearly full parking lot of the first shelter listed in the paper. A high school may be a half hour inland from the beach, with no traffic, that is. 
It's getting dark out, even though it is well before nightfall. The winds are significant, and it's starting to rain. I offer my services at the check-in desk, tell them I'm alone and prepared to help. They take me up on my offer. Most of the volunteers had gotten the call early. They had been busy setting up all day and taking people in as soon as they could. They all look tired, but are grateful for an extra set of hands. I take a seat at the registration desk, checking people in, taking their info, in case someone calls looking for them. Remember, cell phone use is not widespread in 1996. Then they just have to find a spot. Classrooms are closed and locked. Too many windows. So they just have to claim a piece of hallway and set up camp. People come in in a steady stream for the rest of the day and night. All kinds of people. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, young, old, tourist, local, family, couple, individual. They all stream in, a more diverse group I may have never seen. But they all have one thing in common. Fear. Some just a little bit. Some quite a bit. Some fear losing a house or a business. Some are just plain scared. A lot of people had come for a vacation, paying little attention to the weather. And, after arriving at their hotel, they were turned away and sent to us. When they arrive, they are grateful to be there. I feel people are comforted by our calmness and the sense of normalcy in a far-from-normal scenario that we somehow represent. So often, I think, we just need someone to talk to, someone to voice our concern to, to make us feel a little better. Day turns to night and the rain really starts to come down, and the wind really starts to blow. Because of the windows in the entranceway, I can really watch this storm as it unfolds. I'm very grateful for the cinder block walls. Then, much to my surprise, and probably most of the people there, the director of the shelter comes on over the PA system and announces dinner is being served in the cafeteria. It never occurred to me that someone was back in the kitchen, making a meal for hundreds of people. Someone brings me a plate. A hot meal goes over really well. My job changes as the night and the storm roll on. The director of the shelter tells me we are at capacity, and we need to start sending people to the next shelter down the road. There will come a time when the storm really hits, that we will take in whoever comes. But now is not that time, and while there is still time, we need to send people along. I get a stack of photocopy directions to the next shelter. It's not easy to turn people away, especially scared people, in a disaster in the middle of the night. All I can do is reassure them that somewhere down the road, one of the shelters will take them, and that, for now, all they are experiencing is a bad storm, 
we weren't expecting landfall until sometime the next afternoon. I stay up all night, happy to let the other volunteers get some sleep. It's been a long day for everyone there. I'm used to being up late. We turn out the lights and everyone up and down the hallway tries to sleep. Some people pull up a seat and talk. We have great conversations. We could be anywhere if it weren't for the occasional gust that rattles the windows and doors. It's a long night. When morning comes and people start to wake up, it's my turn for some shut-eye. I picture a corner of the hallway, but I got taken to a small, dark, cool back office with a cot and get six solid hours of very deep sleep. I get up for lunch, and entering the cafeteria, I am shocked at what I see. In the few short hours I was asleep, a community has started to form. Tables full of people from noticeably different backgrounds are talking and laughing, talking about the storm, or home, or their kids, breaking bread and sharing a meal with people that, without this storm, they likely wouldn't have spoken to at all. Conversations turn to laughter, and similarities are found where yesterday only differences were seen. A talent show is announced, and people start to break off to practice. Others play cards with strangers. The gym is full of kids from different places and backgrounds laughing and playing together. What a fascinating mosaic is being created before my eyes. I return to my post at registration. The storm, I had almost forgotten about the storm, is raging. We are accepting everyone now. We've crossed the point of no return. At some point, with all the wind, the rope on the flagpole comes undone and starts whipping around like a live wire. The metal clips are coming dangerously close to people's cars, parked too close in the overfull lot. Someone has to secure it, or those cars are going to lose windows. I take off my shirt and run out into the storm. Never before, and perhaps not since, have I been exposed to the raw fury of nature at its best. I have also probably rarely felt more alive than in those three minutes, the 75-mile-per-hour winds pounding into my bare chest. I came back completely soaked, but as awake as I have ever been. As long as I live, I will never forget those three minutes I danced with Bertha in the South Carolina countryside. Bertha had stalled overnight in the Gulf Stream, picking up strength and moving in as a strong Category 2 storm with sustained winds of 105 miles per hour. It also made a northward turn, just slightly, but in my world at the time, just enough. It made landfall around 4 p.m., about 75 miles north of Myrtle Beach, near Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. Tropical storm force winds were felt as far away as New Jersey. Some areas of the coast got as much as a foot of rain. The storm destroyed 1,100 homes and damaged an additional 4,000. 
400,000 residents lost power, including us. In total, Bertha would cause about $1.2 billion worth of damage and kill 12 people. But inside the shelter, we knew very little of that at the time. People were too busy laughing and writing songs and plays. They would perform under emergency lighting for a group of people that less than a day ago had been complete strangers. Brought together by fear, forced together by cramped conditions, but held together by our shared humanity. Such a happy, laughter-filled night, shared with one of the most diverse groups of people I've ever encountered, with the danger now past, and a collective sigh of relief. We spent another night and morning there, the evacuation order being lifted just before lunch on the 13th. I collected thousands of dollars in unsolicited donation checks for the Red Cross from people on the way out the door. But it was the hugs and handshakes that meant more, as people headed back to their lives and vacations. We cleaned up and locked up behind us, and just like that, our shelter turned back into a high school. I took the back way home and made it back in time for a steak dinner, cooked up by Jack under candlelight. His religious ice bagging had paid off. Looking back now, across 20 years of life, I wonder if sometimes that experience has led those people to offer a hand when they could, and maybe to remember that when stripped of our possessions, that we clutch so tightly, that down deep, we are far more similar than we are different. When you work as a tour guide and spend weeks at a time with people, you need to decide just how much you let them into your personal life. And one of the hardest times to have to make that decision is on your birthday. Do you really want 10 strangers with a cheap grocery store cake and a corny card to celebrate with? I know I don't. So of the 10 birthdays I spent on the road, I usually celebrated quietly and privately. But my 2014 birthday fell at just the right time in my schedule to make it the best birthday ever. In October 2014, I found myself leading a two-week trip from New York to Miami, which would end on my birthday. Celebrating a birthday in Miami in late October isn't bad. But since I had the next day off, I thought celebrating my birthday in the Keys would be even better. But the only way I was going to make that happen was with a good plan and a little finesse. The first part of the plan had to be to convince my passengers to finish early so I could get out of Miami before the traffic hit. Thankfully, of all the options between Orlando and Miami, Miami itself is probably the best option. And since most were flying out the next day and wanted to see some of the city, part one of my plan worked out perfectly. Instead of ending at 5 o'clock, I pulled in right around 2, directed them where to go, said my goodbyes, and headed out of town, a huge smile on my face and a warm breeze blowing in the open window. 
It took about an hour and a half to get from South Beach to the Keys. I prefer taking the back way down Card Sound Road so I can stop off at the legendary Alabama Jacks. An ice-cold beer and some conch fritters are a must at this classic South Florida dive. And they did not disappoint that afternoon, hitting the spot on both fronts and getting me out of work mode and into birthday mode. From there, it's just a quick 25 minutes to beautiful John Pennecamp State Park, right on the beach, Oceanside and Key Largo. I got a tent set up quickly and made it to the beach in time to enjoy a cold beer with my feet in the water as the day faded quietly into dusk and then edged towards night. A table for one is a depressing idea for a birthday dinner, so I drove the 20 minutes down to Isla Mirada to hit up Hog Heaven. Hog Heaven sits right on the water, and the back bar is one of my favorite spots in the Upper Keys. Dinner and drinks were spot on, and I would have loved to have stuck around, but I was scuba diving in the morning. Up early and down to the dock, and the water couldn't have been calmer as we headed out to one of my favorite dive sites in the world, the wreck of the USS Spiegel Grove. The Spiegel Grove is a 510-foot U.S. Navy Thomaston-class dock landing ship, intentionally sunk as a dive site in 2002. Moored to one of the buoys, we dropped down the descent line attached to the top of the ship. I love this wreck because you can't see it when you start your descent, but about 40 feet down, it emerges from the deep blue, and it is massive and something to behold. The top of the ship is about 60 feet deep, and the ship itself sits in the sand, which is about 135 feet down. Since you want to go deep first and work back towards the surface, that's exactly what we did. Massive grouper were swimming around, and even a sea turtle made an appearance. We swam in and out of a few rooms, but at this depth, a deep penetration is dangerous, so... We stuck near the outside. Deep dives also don't last that long, so we safely made our way back to the surface after about half an hour. Warming up in the sun, the crew gave us the option of going to do a reef dive or staying and diving the wreck again. What a lucky day to be out. Two dives on the Spiegel Grove for my birthday. We dropped in for our second dive and explored the decks and the wheelhouse. It always strikes me as strange to dive a wreck and see things like stairs and ladders, things we can't do without topside, but have no use for underwater. The second dive was a success, and once topside, we started heading back in towards shore. I grabbed some lunch and a slice of key lime pie and started heading back to Miami. I had a trip leaving the next day, and I had work to do. The whole ride back, though, I had the sun on my skin and a smile on my face, because even though I was alone and far from home, it was the best birthday I could possibly imagine. Who would have thought that the highlight of my year would be a hundred feet underwater, off a tiny island in a tiny corner of America? All right, that's it for the podcast this week. 
Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of American Anthology. From now on, it will be a time to hear the best of what's happening out there in America, with stories not about me, but about you. I'll be coming to a town near you with the hope to explore the best natural and cultural features, learn and share a little history, interview the locals, check out the local music scene, and perhaps hit up a dive bar or grab a slice of pie. So hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss out. To learn more about me, check out my website at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, go before I sleep.com. You can find me on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod and, of course, the legendary Memphis Slim for the music this week and some great sound effects from the guys over at Free SFX. Until next time, travel safe, and I'll see you down the road. I travel the country over, stopped in each and every.